0: Hello and welcome to this Head Talks podcast. I'm Terry Stiasny and I'll be talking to people with interesting things to say about mental health. Joining me now is Johan Harry who's the author most recently of Lost Connections, a book about uncovering the real causes of depression and the unexpected solutions. So you tell us in the book how you were first diagnosed with depression when you were a teenager and you were prescribed antidepressants. What was the process of getting that diagnosis and how did you feel when you were given antidepressants as what the doctors and you obviously hoped would be a solution?
1: Yeah I remember I went to the doctor and I basically said I had this feeling like pain was leaking out of me and I couldn't control it and I felt really ashamed of it, I didn't understand it. And my doctor told me this story, he said well there's, we know why you feel this way scientifically, it's because there's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains, you're clearly lacking it. And so these drugs will boost you back to normal level and I felt a tremendous amount of relief. Some for good reasons, because I was being told it wasn't my fault, which was true, and because I had a story about my pain and my distress. I remember the first time I ever swallowed one, actually. It was uh, not very far from where we are now. and I remember swallowing this, this it would have been a white pill because it was a lower dose. I remember it feeling like a kind of kiss, you know, for this tr- a relief that couldn't even have been the chemicals at that point because it was an immediate sense of relief. And for a few months I felt a lot better and then this sense of pain came to st- bleeding back through. So I went back to the doctor, and the doctor said, "Well, we didn't give you a high enough dose. So we'll give you a high dose." Then I felt another bit of a bout of relief, not quite as long this time. The pain came back, and I was basically in that pattern of increasing my dose until I was taking the maximum possible dose for 13 years. And one of the reasons I wrote Lost Connections is because there were these two mysteries that were really hanging over me. I was quite afraid of looking into them. One was, why was I still depressed? Right? I've been to- our whole culture has been told this story. I was doing what the story told me to do, and I still felt like shit. And the second thing was, why are there so many other people like me? You know, one in 11 people in Britain are so distressed and so anxious that they, they need to drug themselves to get through the day. There's a lot more people who are really distressed who are not taking the drugs. And I just thought, can it really be that this is getting so much worse just because of a kind of chemical imbalance in our brains? So I ended up going on this big long journey, I went over 40,000 miles I interviewed the leading scientists in the world on the causes of depression and I went to places that just had really different perspectives on this from an Amish village in Indiana because the Amish have really low depression to uh, you know a city in Brazil where they banned advertising to see if it would make people feel better, to a lab in Baltimore where they were giving people magic mushrooms to see if that made them feel better and I think the main thing I learned is that this initial story I was told was not true so professor andrew skull at princeton for example says that saying depression is just caused by low serotonin is deeply misleading and unscientific that's his phrase the un did a study of the best research a big review of the best research and they said we need to talk less about chemical imbalances more about power imbalances and that was really challenging to me that was the hardest part of the book but then i learned oh there's this different story about, in fact, depression is overwhelmingly, there are biological factors that make it worse, but, but to a very large degree, depression is a response to specific things going wrong in the way we are living today. So I, I go through, n- I learned about the scientific evidence for nine causes of depression and anxiety, and that opened up a very different way of thinking about our path out of it, which should exist alongside chemical antidepressants.
0: Yes, I was really struck by one of the scientists that you talked to in the book, who says that you shouldn't just or treat the symptoms or even I think says you shouldn't treat the symptoms. I mean, with any other illness, we tend to accept that there are lifestyle elements and that there might be social elements. You know, if you come down with chest infections or get cancer or something, we say that yes, that might be caused by your lifestyle. We don't say don't treat the symptoms. We still say there's a medical uh, treatment for your symptoms. What's, why do you think mental illness might be different?
1: I don't. I think we should treat the symptoms, but I think we should also deal with the deep underlying causes. So it can sound a bit weird and abstract if I don't mention one of the, the, the causes. I'll give you a good example. Um, one I think that a lot of people listening to this will 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 play it, will uh, recognise. Um, I noticed that lots of the people I know who are depressed and anxious, that depression anxiety focuses around their work. So start to look at how do people feel about their work. There's a most detailed study. This was done by Gallup, the opinion poll organisation. They found. It's quite shocking. 13% of us like our work most of the time. We enjoy it. We look forward to it. Get energy from it. 63% of people are what they call sleepwalking through their work. They don't like it. They don't hate it. They're just enduring it. And 24% of people hate their jobs. So think about that. 87% of people don't like the thing they're doing most of the time. And you're almost twice as likely to hate your job as love your job. And I thought, wow, could this be affecting, you know, emotional and mental health? And I learned there was this incredible Australian social scientist who I got to know, Professor Michael Marmot, who'd actually cracked this. I can explain how, if you like, I think it's a really interesting story. But just to give you the headline, he discovered the key factor. It's not the only one, but the key factor in work that makes people depressed. If you feel you are controlled in your work, if you feel you have no choices in your work, or few choices, you are significantly bec- more likely to become depressed. or in fact, significantly more likely to have a stress-related heart attack. And I think that's related to something that that that, uh, connects a lot of the causes of depression and anxiety, I learned about not all of them, which is everyone knows we have certain physical needs, right? You need food, water, shelter, clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd be in trouble really quickly. There's equally strong evidence that we have natural psychological needs. There are things that you need to be a healthy human being. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel you have meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel that you have a future you understand. And our culture is good at lots of things, but it's getting less and less good at meeting people's underlying, many, not all, of people's underlying psychological needs. And I think this is one of the big drugs, so how that relates to work is people have a need to feel their life is meaningful. And if you're just controlled for, you know, from when you answer your first work email at, I think it figures 7.48 a.m., and you clock off work at 7.15 p.m., you can't, you can't create meaning out of your work. And that led me to, a very different, just to stay with that one, led me to a very different way of thinking about solutions. So I went and met this person called Meredith Keogh, who um, used to go to bed every Sunday night, just sick with anxiety, thinking about the week ahead. She had an office job. It wasn't the worst office job in the world. She wouldn't been bullied or anything, but she was just really anxious and bored and, and frustrated. She couldn't bear the thought this was going to be the next 40 years of her life. And one day, Meredith, with her husband Josh, did this, did this This quite bold thing. Josh had worked in bike shops since he was a teenager. And, you know, that's insecure, controlled work. And one day with his colleagues, Josh kind of said, what does our boss actually do, right? They fixed all the bikes. They liked their boss. He wasn't a bad guy, but... They decided they were going to set up a bike store that ran in a different way. Instead of being top-down, controlled, these circumstances that generate depression, they set up a democratic cooperative. So they don't have a boss. They take all the big decisions together. They share out the good tasks and the bad tasks. They share all the income, obviously, proceeds, profits. And one of the things that was fascinating going to, to Baltimore Bicycle Works was how many of them talked about having been depressed and anxious before and not being depressed actually now, which totally fits with Professor Michael Marmot's findings. And the interesting thing about that is, it's not that Professor Marmot is saying, some people get to have nice jobs, and some people get shit jobs, and they're going to be miserable. You know, they fixed bikes before, they fixed bikes now, they haven't gone off to be Beyonce's backing singers, right? What changed was the factor that causes depression was stripped out of their lives, which is the control. Now, I would say that is an antidepressant. That's a really powerful antidepressant. We should regard an antidepressant as anything that reduces depression and anxiety. Chemical antidepressants should totally be one of the things on the menu. But I I learned about a huge range of antidepressants that we should be adding to the menu, and as Josh said to me, there's no reason why any business should work in this top-down, humiliating, depressing way. We could change all of our corporations into democratic cooperatives. That'd be one of the single biggest things I think you could do to reduce depression. Imagine anyone listening to this is depressed and anxious. Imagine if you were going into work tomorrow to a workplace where you set the priorities for the work with the people around you. You chose your work to a significant degree. If there's a boss, he's accountable to you, as well as the other way around. Think about how much more empowering and less depressing that would be. That's just one of the causes of depression and one of the solutions that, that I talk about in the book. Some are kind of smaller, some are bigger.
0: Do you think for many people, though, who are particularly suffering from anxiety or depression or, or feeling very low, that those might seem insurmountable challenges? They're not as you say, something that can just be done by yourself or something that can necessarily be done by your GP who's got you know resource constraints and time constraints and everything else.
1: Yeah, one of my closest relatives is a struggling single mum who's just fighting to pay the rent, right? working every hour she can. So saying to her, your job is to democratise your workplace would be grotesque and actually cruel. So a big part of the argument of, of, of Lost Connections is we need to change our society so that far more people are freed up to make these resources. I think one of the cruelest things about what we do with depressed and anxious people is we put the onus for solving this problem on them. We don't say that car crashes should be solved by people who've been mangled in car crashes, right? We have driving tests and speed limits and airbags and seatbelts, and we arrest drunk drivers. We have the whole society works to reduce car accidents. In the same way, there are things individuals can do, and I go through some, but you're right. The things that really need to happen are things that we need to band together and changes we can make. But I'm actually very optimistic about that. You know, I'm gay, right? One of my nephews is 17. He's coming tonight to hear me speak. I recently showed him some of the front pages from national newspapers from when I was the age he is, which is not so long ago, I'm only 39. He literally couldn't believe it. He said, Did people phone the police? Today, if the craziest UKIP councillor said what used to be on the front page of The Sun every day when I was a kid, or it felt like every day, can't bit every day, they'd have to resign. So, extraordinary social changes can happen. But that social change didn't happen just because people sat there and waited for it, it happened because an incredibly brave generation of gay men and women, mostly above me, Organised, demanded it, and loads of amazing heterosexual people opened their hearts, listened to them. So that transformation didn't happen by accident. It happened because people demanded it. And actually, the very act of saying, "What we're being offered is not good enough. Our needs are not being met. We need to come together to fight for something better," is in itself an antidepressant, right? And there's lots of evidence about that. that I go through in the book that just coming together in a collective struggle itself is incredibly empowering. And there are things doctors can do. So. I don't think this is a technical problem to be fixed by technicians, but there are things doctors can do. In the book, I give an example of w- one of the great heroes of the book, and a man I, j- can't, I can't tell you how much I admire, a man called Dr. Sam Everington. He runs a, a, co-runs a GP surgery in East London, near where I used to live, poor part of London. And Sam was very uncomfortable, because he had loads of people coming to him who were depressed and anxious. And he'd been taught to tell them you've just got a chemical imbalance in your brain. He actually knew the science doesn't say there's chemical imbalance in their brains. It's not what's going on. But more importantly, he just thought this is... Like me, he's not opposed to chemical antidepressants. He gives, he gives them out, as I would if I was a doctor in some circumstances. But he just thought giving people drugs is not meeting the scale of the challenge. They need more than just that. A lot of them were very lonely. They were insecure. He pioneered this different approach. So I'll give you an example from one of his patients who I got to know, a woman called Lisa Cunningham. So Lisa had been shut away in her home with really crippling anxiety and depression for seven years. She was in a terrible state. And she went to see uh, either Sam or one of his colleagues. And he said to her, We'll keep on giving you the drugs, don't worry. I'm also going to prescribe for you to take part in a group. There was a, an area behind the doctor surgery that was called Dogshit Alley, which came, well, not officially, I assume, which gives you a sense of what it was like. And they were like, they said to a group of depressed and anxious people, it was about 20 of them, will you guys meet a couple of times a week and just make this into something beautiful? So they go, and Lisa was f- literally physically sick with anxiety at the first meeting she went to. And they kept turning up. They had something to talk about that wasn't how shit they felt. They started getting their fingers in the soil. Actually, disconnection from the natural world is a profound cause of depression that I talk about in the book. And reconnection with nature is a profound antidepressant. They start reconnecting with the soil. They start learning gardening. They start to bond with each other. They start to solve each other's problems because when we're together, we can do that. There was a guy in the gardening group who was sleeping on the bus. Lisa thought, well, of course you're depressed if you're sleeping on the bus. She started fighting with the council to get them to house him. They got in house. it was the first time she'd done something for someone else in years. She felt so much better because of that than anything else she'd done. And the way Lisa puts it and some of the other people who took part, as the garden began to bloom, they began to bloom. And there was a, simi- a study in Norway of a similar programme that found it was twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. I think for obvious reasons, it deals with the actual reasons why they were depressed, not all of them, but a lot of them. And I think that gives us a really important insight. There's value in the drugs, there are biological aspects to this, it's worth treating the biological aspects. There's such a huge social and psychological aspect to depression that plays out in every depressed person. We have to deal with the root causes. So far we've only been blunting the symptoms and that's there's some value in that, right? I did it for a long time. They do blunt some of the symptoms for some people but that's not the solution for most people. That doesn't deal with the overall problem. We've been increasingly drugging people for the last 30 years and every year we've done it depression and anxiety have increased at some point we have to say well look, this is not solving the problem it's giving a bit of relief to to some people and that's important but it's not solving the problem
0: so after going around and speaking to all of these people that you've spoken to and traveling and meeting all of these people and visiting places
1: what have you taken away from that that actually works for you loads of things but i just want to preface this by saying to my answer by saying two things firstly I was in an incredibly privileged position because I had money from my previous book so I could change the way I lived. Someone like my close relative is not in that position. And so I'm certainly not saying this is what everyone should do today because frankly a lot of people don't have the margin to change their lives. So a key part is saying we need to change the way our society functions so that more people are free to make their choice. The other thing I would say is the fact that it worked for me is not evidence, right? This is just an anecdote. The reason why I think people should listen to this is because I interviewed these amazing scientists who actually gathered loads of scientific evidence. Having said all that, so many things I learned changed how I live. but I'll give you an example of one. I went to Berkeley in California to interview someone called Dr. Brett Ford, who's done this really interesting research. It's quite simple, and maybe other people will find it kind of obvious. I found it life-changing. They did this research to find out, if you consciously try to spend more time making yourself happier, will you actually become happier? They did this research, in four, her and her colleagues did this in four countries, the US, Japan, Taiwan, and Russia. And what they found was, in the US, and I'm sure this will be true of us, if you try to make yourself happier consciously, deliberately, you don't become happier. But in the other countries, you do. And they were like, well, what's going on here? So they looked in more detail. What they found is, in the US, and I'm pretty sure for us, if you try to make yourself happier, you generally do something for yourself. You big yourself up, you buy something for yourself, you work harder. In the other countries, generally, when you try to make yourself happier, you did something for someone else. And it turns out our vision of happiness just doesn't work. This individualism is not the species we are. Just like bees need a hive, humans need a tribe. The reason we exist is because our ancestors were unbelievably good at banding together in tribes and cooperating. All of our instincts are to be together. And so what I took from that, you know, it used to be when I started feeling these very painful feelings coming on, I would do something most of the time, not always, for myself. Now I make myself do something for someone else. That doesn't have to be a big fancy thing. Just going and sitting with someone and listening to them is itself an extraordinarily transformative <coughs> gift that you can give them. And it will make you feel better too. Thank you so much. I should just take My publishers tell me if I don't, anyone who wants any more information can go to www.thelostconnections.com where they can take a quiz to see how much they know about depression and anxiety and hear interviews with lots of the people that I've mentioned and other good stuff. Thank
0: you very much for talking to me. I really appreciate that. Thank Thanks. you.